Hello, welcome back to Rogue Radio. I'm Sarah Jane. Um, so this is uh, part two of my testimony, and uh, it's uh, gonna be even more deep. Um, I just listened to the one that I finished, and uh, I realized that I left some stuff out that uh, I, that was kind of important. So I'm gonna go quickly into, like, my childhood, uh, like, my spiritual childhood, I guess I I could say that, like, within church. Um, I remember to this day, my mom, uh, always had to dress me, always had to dress me in pantsuits, dresses, everything. Um, I come from a very deep-rooted, uh, old-fashioned Christian family. And, um, so putting on your Sunday best was like a must. And I was a very creative child and I had paint stains on my pants, ink stains on my pants and colored on my shoes and wrote on my pants and everything. And that was just me expressing myself because I always wanted something different to wear than everybody else. And, um, I remember I always hated my mom dressing me. I always hated the fact that my mom always had to make sure that I looked nice. And that is something that, um, I don't believe that being a follower of Christ is supposed to be is to look nice all the time and look the part of a Christian and everything. Because, I mean, if you look in the Bible, you don't see... You, you don't actually read about Jesus in a three-piece suit preaching. You don't see that uh, cleanliness is next to godliness in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Jesus was a man who traveled everywhere, walked everywhere, had a beard, because, I mean, the only um, deduction from my point of view is that he was Jewish, so he probably had long hair and a beard. And we all know that image of Jesus in a white robe and sandals. Well, if that's true, why are we so... Uh, so absorbed into looking nice in church when Jesus was probably the most dirtiest and smelliest and scraggliest man talking about the love of his father and how much God loved everybody and preaching the gospel. I mean, the man hung out with thieves and liars um, most of the time. You honestly don't think he, you know, looked the part? I mean, they were in Israel. It was hot. It was dusty. It was dry. Yeah, Jesus got dirty. I don't think people like thinking about that either. Because it's like, oh, no, no, no. Jesus was clean all the time. And, oh, you know, because we, I don't know why we think that holiness is about cleanliness. Because it's not. You don't look holy. 
You're not, there is no image to holiness except for Christ himself, but humanity has decided to adopt cleanliness as godliness, and it is disgusting to me. And, um, that's one of the reasons why I absolutely hated church, was because of how religious it was. And when I say religious, I mean how things looked. How people acted, what they said. It's all about what should be seen and what should be said and how we are supposed to act instead of how we really are. And, um, I don't, I'm gonna preach a little bit, just a little bit, okay, uh, to all the, um, to all of the churches in my city, in Toledo, I just wanna say this, get it together, for one, okay? It is not about how you look, it is not about how many people are in your congregation. It is not about that. It is about caring about the condition of somebody's heart in your congregation. It is not about the condition of your clothes. It is the condition of someone's heart. So if you see a homeless man walking into your sanctuary, are you going to scoff at him? Pastors? I mean, the congregation follows the example of the pastors. What are you doing? If a homeless man comes in He's dirty, he's smelly, and he just wants to hear about God. Are you accepting him as he is? Or are you going to be like, oh God, he's ugly, he's just disgusting, why is he here? Oh my God, he's popping my bubble. If you care too much about how he looks, then you're probably religious and you probably really need to get your stuff together, honestly. That's all I'm going to say. So, get it together, church. This is not okay. Because you're losing souls. Anyway. Well, that's one of the reasons why I absolutely hated church. It's because, for one, I had to act a certain way. I had to look a certain way. My family always gave me dresses and pantsuits. Old lady pantsuits, okay? For me to wear at church. And... Oh my god, it just infuriated me because all I wanted was to dress myself. And I did not dress myself until I was like 13. And even then, my family was like, Oh, you should wear this and that. And I felt pressured to do it. And I was the only person wearing a dress in a youth group Sunday school. I looked ridiculous. And I felt embarrassed. Like, I can't look like everybody else. I don't know why. It's not, it's not, I didn't like it. (laughs) I still get passionate about it. I'm like, why did my family do this to me? Like, there has been one time where I think I, I tricked my family, my mom and dad, at this point. Because I wanted to wear what I wanted. And I thought this outfit was really cute, even though the pants were (laughs) ink-stained. Um, and it was, like, the 2000s, so I had, like, that, those, like, fuzzy sweatpants on and this cute little pale pink top. And I had a Newsboys hat on with the same color as my pants. And I looked, I thought I looked cute. But I also had, like, sneakers that I painted 
like colored on and stuff and I hid in one of the classrooms because I did not want my mom or my dad to see me because <laughs> I knew that they were going to talk to each other and they finally caught me and they they put me in their car because I looked raggedy they were so ashamed of me wearing that that they stuck me in their car and I was not allowed to you know be in church like I was not allowed to participate in church because I I didn't look the part now I'm not blaming my parents I'm not blaming I'm not playing the blame game that's just how they were taught and that's how I was taught but I'm going to teach my children differently okay because I don't because I recognize that that was not right but Throughout my childhood, in my family, I always felt like I had to act a certain way and, and be a certain way. And every time that I expressed myself verbally, I was either shouted down or ignored or even be like, Oh, Sarah, stop arguing. You're just trying to argue. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to join the conversation. Why can't I join the conversation and be a voice too? Like there were times when like, my parents, we were talking about Egypt for some reason, and I wanted to put my two cents in. And I remember them saying, or I remember like putting my two cents in because I like, I watched a documentary. Like this is a for example. Every time I go back to a memory, it's basically an example of like what I had to go through. But I remember putting my <laughs> two cents in saying, something about the caste system because my my dad was saying like you know how dirty Egypt is and like how um like the hard life that they got there and I'm like it's because of the caste system because if you guys don't know what a caste system is it's a ranking of people so like um the government would be first and then the uh businesses would be second and then the farmers would be third and then you know so on and so forth all the way down the ladder and I remember my mom and dad got silent like they only gave me one word replies and I'm like why why can't we just discuss this and debate this like people like grown-ups and I'm, I even said that I even was like why aren't you listening to me why aren't you talking to me and I got upset, and I remember just, like, talking to them about it, like, how upset I was, and they're, my mom's like, well, it's just because we're not interested in it, honey. And I'm like, you guys were just talking about this. And I can't put my opinion on the situation just because I'm your daughter, because I'm, like, in... <sighs> I don't know what they thought of me, but I got upset. And I was like, well, why do I even speak to you guys when when you guys don't even listen? And then they're like, oh, Sarah, stop being dramatic. Stop being dramatic. The only reason why I was ever dramatic was because I was never heard. I was never really listened to. And they always mistook my passion for anger or for radicalism. And 
they always thought that I wanted to argue. And that kind of upset me because there were times when I actually really wanted to talk to them. But they had this idea in, in their head that I was the person that always wanted to start something. Always wanted to start a fire. And I'm like, listen, I'm just just trying to talk to y'all. You, you guys tell me that I should be more social, but then you shut me down the moment I say something. It, it was a constant building up and tearing down, and I don't, I don't know if they realized that. But that's a memory. It, it's not... I'm not angry about it now. I'm not upset about it now. You know, everything that was in the past is in the past. I will say that. So... But this is, this is how it was. This is how my childhood was up to my teens. And uh, like I said, there was a spirit of perfection in the family. And um, I thought I had to be perfect and had to look nice. I mean, my family always complained that I wore holes in my jeans and ripped shirts and ripped jeans and stuff. I was just being creative or, you know, I was just a different type of kid. That's just who I was. And, um... I didn't like the fact that they didn't like me for me. They just cared about how I looked and how I acted and what I should say and shouldn't say and everything. And it was just stupid to me. And, um... So I believe that that kind of tied into the spirit of perfection... I feel like that tied into a lot with my mental illness, where I could not be myself. I felt like I was being put in a box that I couldn't fit in. So, um, to pick up the story where I left off, I was in a psych ward for five days, and I was on... Uh, medical leave to the people in school, to like the official people in school, like the principal and everything. So I think they kind of knew what was going on, but they also didn't very much. I don't know. But I remember getting there and seeing uh, the other kids. And um, the first thought that came into my head was like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here because there have been people who, or there have been kids that had uh, actually tried to kill themselves. One of them actually tried to drink Drano. And uh, because they had like a, a problem with their mom or something like that. Another, you know, other two, they just tried to hurt themselves for whatever reason. Another girl, um, you know, tried killing herself because she, she claimed that there was a ghost girl in her house that told her to. And it was very strange and very, very scary for me to, uh, because I'm the only person that I knew of at that time in there that actually just thought about killing myself. I never really acted upon it. And, um, so that's why I was like, I don't belong here. I'm just depressed. I, all this stuff. And 
um, I remember um, the first two days you're on suicide watch, meaning um, they take your belongings and put it in a locker. I wore a scarf there and they had to take it from me so I wouldn't hang myself. Um, so yeah. Um, and I remember the first night I cried. I, I just cried myself to sleep. I was 19 and I was in a psych ward and uh, I didn't know how this even happened. I, I knew my family cared about me. I understood that, you know, this was just something that they, this was like their last resort or whatever. I don't even know. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that was the first time I was actually separated from my family. And they, even though they visited a few times, like as much as they could, it was the fact that I was separated and I wasn't there all the time with them. And, um, and it scared me. I was in a place where I didn't know anybody and it was traumatizing. And, um, I remember hearing screams in the middle of the night, um, because there was a girl who was mute, um, and the only thing that she could do to communicate with someone was to scream. And I, I want to say she was about, what, seven years old and she was in a psych ward because her parents, I don't know, the condition of, like, their minds at the time for them to bring their child to a psych ward who was seven and was mute. And I... I remember my heart broke for her more than it did for myself because this girl wanted so much to talk, but she couldn't because she was mute. And that was the one thing that she couldn't do was speak and she, I knew that she wanted to do that and I, I, um, I heard so many of like the, um, the wardens there, I wouldn't say wardens, they're not people who dictate a prison, they're more of, um, therapists. The therapist would be like, no, you're not supposed to scream. They're just telling her sternly not to scream. And we're gonna wait for the sirens to go away. But that was, that was my experience there. And, uh, I remember her even, you know, trying to talk. Like, she would vocalize certain things. Like, she would try to form words and she would say it audibly or try. So, I knew that she wasn't necessarily too mute, even if she was diagnosed with being mute. Because you can't scream without vocal cords and you can't vocalize without vocal cords. So... Why was she even there, you know? But that was probably the worst case that I saw there. And um, every day was the same. We had occupational therapy, which was art. We had school. And the teacher really didn't do much. Um, we had lunch. We had group activities. 
we had every meal of the day, and then at the end of every day, we would talk to a therapist. And I remember even being interviewed because they, by the UT students there, because they never saw a case like mine where they had, um, how do I say this? They didn't necessarily see a case like mine. I'm not sure what that necessarily meant at the time, but I was in a classroom full of UT students asking me questions about my mental illness and my mental state, and I was also talking to them about Christ. And I don't know. Like, (laughs) there I was more at peace because people were asking me about God. I don't know. I was ministering to people even though I was in this mental state, which kind of astounded me. Or it astounds me now that I'm kind of going back through this. But um, every day we went and saw a therapist, and this therapist... He was Hindu. He had a he had a Sikh turban on, and uh, he would talk to me uh, one on one every day at the end of the every day. So um, I remember one day um, telling him like, "Oh my God, I just I feel so strongly that I hate God, and I hate that He's put me through this, and I I hate the fact that He has." put me through this and I I just hate him. I feel like I hate him for it. Like I feel, I feel like I hate him for it. But then I said something else. I said, I know I don't though. I know I don't hate him. And I don't know what else I said in that room that made this Hindu man tell me like, he kind of looked at me. He goes, Sarah, you have such a good connection with God, I don't I don't understand why you're having a problem. And it wasn't until my dad, I told my dad about it, and he was like, Sarah, you just ministered to a Hindu man. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I was doing things unknowingly, um, and God was still using me. And it was really, really cool. <laughs> but, um... At the end of the five-day stay at this psych ward, I ended up going back to school. And uh, it was kind of emotional for me because I didn't expect a welcome like this. Um, I came back to high school and people in the hallway would recognize that I was back. And they would say, hey, Sarah, we missed you, and we, we, we love you, and, you know, I hope you're doing okay. And I don't know whether they were notified about what was going on with me or what. It, you know, I don't, I don't understand. I, I, I don't know how. But um, I just knew that they realized that, the, that I was absent from school. And they recognized that I was back, and they they were happy about it. And uh, I didn't know I mattered that much to so many different random people. Like, I didn't even know a lot of these people. Like, I knew of them. But they actually 
didn't like know me personally and they were like oh I'm so glad you're back we missed you and you know tell us about what happened or whatever you know where have you been and um I was kind of touched because I was like I didn't know that I mattered that much my existence mattered that much to my classmates like um I even had a friend at the time, like, he gave me a, uh, card saying, like, listen, because I think he was one of the people that I actually did pour my heart out to at the time about what I was going through, and he sent me a card, he, he gave me a card, he goes, listen, you can talk to me about anything, just, just don't keep it to yourself, you know, and, uh, he even gave me his number to, like, talk to him and, and everything, and, um, I've had teachers talk to me and say they missed me and that they wanted to know what was going on and uh, I like I freely told them I didn't really have much to hide I didn't care um, there was a science biochemistry science partner that I had and he got up and he was like Let's give Sarah a big hand for coming back. I'm like, <laughs> you really don't gotta do that, but thank you. <laughs> but it kind of made me recognize, like, how much I mattered to people in general. Like, I didn't know that I mattered to my classmate. I didn't know I mattered that much to anybody there. Because I felt so invisible there. Um, but... Um, yeah, um, I even ended up telling a couple of my friends of, like, where I was at during lunch, and they didn't even bat an eyelash, they're like, Sarah, just don't be alone, like, don't go through this alone, like, we're super serious, we love you, we don't want to see you go through this. Like, even my own friends that I was hiding this from did not even care what I was going through. They just wanted to make sure that I was okay. And I love every one of them for it. I just, I do everyone that kind of saw what I was going through at the time. Whether you listen to this or not, you matter so much to me. And I love you guys so much for what you did. Um... Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna whew, calm down for a minute because that's not the end of it. <laughs> I wish I could say that that was the end of my testimony, but it, it is definitely not because even after I graduated, I, um, I moved out into a housing where um, they house people with mental illness like bipolar and depression and all that stuff and it's a program to help people get up on their feet and go out into the world and make something of themselves and um, I still live here now and uh, so yeah but um, I ended up going into um, a school called Paul Mitchell and it was for cosmetology because I I loved makeup, I loved like painting my face and stuff like that, and I found out that they had a class there for special effects makeup. And I ended up enrolling, 
and I went to uh, orientation and you know to get everything ready and then I um, put in my application and my proposal and my headshots and everything and uh, that day after um, after orientation I had a nap I took a nap and I had a dream about um, the person who was holding the orientation my recovery coach at the time and then three other people in this room um, and they were laying hands on me and praying over me so so that was I think that was God's way of saying okay you're on the right path keep going you know and um, so I ended up enrolling I still had that perfectionist spirit at this time um, I had a, um, I'm not going to speak too much about anything other than my education, but at this time I cut off a lot of the friends that I had at the time, not the friends from high school, although I think at that time we kind of just grew apart, but, um, I remember I just kind of cut off everybody that had, you know, just kind of didn't have my best interest in mind or at that time that's what I thought I know now it was just because they wanted to see me grow and I took offense to them wanting me to grow just didn't want to really do anything at the time because I was so depressed but I cut myself off of from them and I was isolated I isolated myself um, I had anxiety attacks a lot And, um, like I said, when I was cutting somebody's hair, I always had this perfectionist spirit that I had to be perfect at it, that I had to be like really good at it. And there were times when I had thoughts of like, oh, Sarah, I hate myself because I, I didn't do this right. Or I didn't do that right. I mean, as a cosmetologist, as a hairdresser, you will mess up at least a few times. That's just how it is. That's a learning experience that I've taken from school. But I remember there were times that I would have my hands behind my back. And I'd be so mad at myself. And I would poke myself with my shears. And, um, yeah, that's kind of where the cutting comes in. Um... I was so isolated and I felt like I was a big problem to everybody at the time. And I'm sorry if this is a trigger warning to anybody, I am going to I'm not going to go in too much detail with it, but if you are triggered with anything about, you know, me talking about cutting myself or anything like that, I would suggest that you turn off the podcast or skip it um until, you know, I don't talk about this, but, um, I ended up having so much emotion and so much shame and so much, uh, feeling like I didn't matter to other people that I used to cut myself with my shears. And, um, I only did it twice because the second time it really scared me. I honestly thought I was going to (laughs) die, but I, I only laugh at it because It was just because, like, it wasn't even that deep. It didn't, 
like bleed that much but okay I'm not gonna go into that but um I cut myself twice with my shears um there were two times that I did this and I didn't want to tell anybody and I definitely didn't want to tell my parents about it although my mom did find out but um I remember I had to do this myself. I had to come forward myself. So I ended up going to one of my teachers at the time. Um, and I don't know if, I mean, it's highly unlikely, excuse me, it's highly unlikely that she'll ever hear this. But you know who you are. And if you're listening, I just want to tell you thank you. You probably saved my life. And I, I absolutely love you for it, but uh, I, I came to her and I'm like, can we talk privately? And uh, I told her and I showed her my scars. And she hugged me and she's like, Sarah, you're loved. She said, Sarah, you're loved. Don't ever feel like you have to do that again. Talk to us. I don't remember the extent of like what she said in depth, but I just remember being really grateful for her taking my shears. And so, uh, every time I had a haircut, I had to go to the office and get it, but it was better off not having it to hurt myself at home where they didn't have any control and um so I um I knew I was in a safe place there that um people actually really did care for me there um that they loved me and they wanted to see me succeed and everything so um I ended up uh, graduating uh, Paul Mitchell, and uh, just before I graduated, I met my fiance, Terrence, and uh, Terrence actually <laughs> becomes a really big part of my life, uh, and it kind of helps me see the real Christ, and who Christ really is, apart from religion, and um, I gotta make it short, because I don't want to make a third part. But, um, I have about, I have about 20 minutes left. Um, but, um, before I graduated, I started talking to my fiancé. And, uh, uh, I didn't know that I loved him at the time. Like, he, uh, <laughs> we, we will both confess that we were not each other's types, but, uh, something pulled us together and um, he helped me see the real Christ and the Christ that loves you unconditionally and uh, just you know wants to see the best in you and f to fulfill his plan for you and everything and um, I will always be grateful for that because I also think that he might have also saved my life spiritually because uh, I was in a very dark place 
uh, before I graduated and even after I graduated it was kind of hard for me because I didn't know where to go I didn't know what to do um, and so I am now a recovery coach um, I work at a wellness center it's not a crisis center it's more of a, a, a place for people to find a safe place to kind of uh, get up on their feet and stuff and I am a recovery coach meaning that I use my mental illness or like my mental what I've gone through mentally my mental experience to help other people uh, through whatever they're going through and it's a very reward Jesus it's a very rewarding job and uh, I thank God for it honestly um, so yeah, that, that's what I do now, and, um, I'm, I'm glad that I can do that, and everything, so I just, um, I'm, I hope that, I don't know, I guess the one thing that I can say, um, to people who are going through their own mental journey and their own mental illness is please don't give up <laughs> there are people around you that love you and want to understand you you just have to open up don't don't make yourself be alone don't don't be alone with your thoughts find your small circle of friends that support you, the, fa the family members that support you. Sometimes your family don't support you. Sometimes your friends are more of your family than your blood is. And um, that's all I really want to tell you, that you can recover from this because I have come out a recovery coach from everything that I had gone through to help others with what they're going through and here I am also trying to use my testimony to help other people and I hope to God I hope to God and I pray to God that this reaches people that really really need to hear it that you are not a misfit you are not a failure you are not an ugly or fat or evil person or whatever you have decided to label yourself or whatever your mental illness has decided to label label yourself <laughs> um it is not true it's a lie from hell you are a good person and whether or not you believe in god okay for those of you who do you're a child of god and even if you don't and you're questioning you're still a child of god and he wants a relationship with you and he loves you and um, yeah, I'm gonna preach, okay? Just a little bit. He wants, he wants you to give him a chance. Because he loves you that much. He's your father. But I'm not gonna try to force anything on you. This is just what I feel God wants me to say. That he loves you. He understands. He knows you. He sees you. I just want to let you know that you are not what you are saddled with. You are not what you have been crippled with. 
you are victorious and you are a wonderful person. And uh, that's um, my show for today. Because <laughs> if I keep on going, I'm just going to keep on going passionately and then it's just not going to make any sense anymore. But, um, anyway, uh, have, have a good day, guys. I don't even know how to end this. <laughs> but um, like I said, I hope this really helps someone out there with what they're going through. And I just want to let you know you're not alone. You are loved. Find the people that love you and stay with them. And find the people that help you grow. Because it's worth it. Life is worth it. No matter where you are, no matter what you come from, no matter what you've done, there's still hope for you. As long as you allow it to be enough for you. Alright? I love you. Have a good day.